Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. It's not complicated, but it is difficult, meaning that you have to be persistent, you have to be consistent, and you have to really try to, like you mentioned, formulate a strategy and stick with it and learn the process. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I am your host, Joe Cornwell, and today I'm joined by our, our special guest, David Meyer. You probably know David from his work with Bigger Pockets. He is the VP in Data Analytics. He has his own segment on their podcast series, and he works full-time as an analyst and economist. He is also a real estate investor. He does some active and mostly passive real estate investing in the Colorado markets. He is based in Amsterdam, Europe. And he has also written a new book that we will get into later. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here, Joe. I appreciate it. So one of the main reasons I asked you to be on the show today is I want to talk about all the happenings in the real estate market. We are now in January of 24. I think a lot of talk last year was on the market, the trends, what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. Obviously, we've all been following the data, and I know that is your expertise, which is, again, why I wanted you here today. So I guess let's open with very broad generalities. What do you see happening over the first half of 2024? I think the first half of 24 is unfortunately probably going to be a lot more of the same of what we've seen over the last few years. And I'm mostly talking about residential real estate. It just seems like it's still pretty sluggish. And I know we're recording in the beginning of January. People have been very excited about the downward trajectory of mortgage rates recently. Personally, I'm not convinced they're going to continue down on this nice linear path that everyone's hoping for. And I think we're going to just see a little bit more volatility. I am hopeful we'll see a little bit of uptick in demand, a little bit of uptick in supply. So things will start to thaw a little bit. But I'm not expecting any real big fundamental shift in the main things that are causing rates with the dynamics right now, which are in my mind. The first one is super low affordability, lowest they've been since 1985. The second is a lack of inventory. And the third is just sluggish home sales. 
No one really wants to participate in the housing record right now. And though I do think that's going to get better, I think it's going to get better slowly and not really, at least in the first few months of 2024, to the point where people are all of a sudden feeling like things are much better or things are much worse. It's probably going to feel similar. One thing that comes to mind for me is we hear this rumor floating around and it's kind of gotten a little convoluted as to what was said or how it was said or who said it, but the Fed is hinting at potentially three rate cuts this year. You may know more specifics about how that was leaked, so to speak, but what are your thoughts on that rumor? There's a couple of different things going on. The first is the Federal Reserve at their meetings released something called the Summary of Economic Projections. And that includes something called a dot plot. It's super nerdy, but basically it's just a poll of different Fed governors and what they think is going to happen to the federal funds rate. This is not mortgage rates, but the federal funds rate by the end of the year. And this year, this most recent projection showed rates coming down in 2024 for the first time. And I think what's important here is that this is estimates. The Fed is not saying we're going to do this. This is saying, given our read of the data today, this is what we think might happen. But the Fed is very data dependent. So they're going to keep looking at things like inflation and the labor market and adjust it. And I think it's almost guaranteed that the dot plot and their projections are going to change over time. The other thing that's going on is that according to certain tools that track how bond investors are forecasting rates, the market, so to speak, bond investors think that rates will come down six times next year. So they're a little bit more dovish on inflation and and thinking rates will come down. And so I think that's what's led to a lot of the optimism in mortgage rates and in real estate recently. I hope they're right. (laughs) I'll just say that. But I do think we can get into this, some technical things that might make it harder for rates to fall as much as people think that they're going to next year. Yeah. Give us more on that. What are your thoughts? So basically, when you get into what mortgage rates are, it's really a function of 10-year bond yields. And this gets into how the financial system works. But basically, bond yields, mortgage rates, very closely correlated. And bond yields right now are at around 4%, which means that during normal times, that would mean about a 6% mortgage rate. Right now, it's higher than that due to some uncertainty issues. But what would happen for rates to go down into the fives, like some people are forecasting, we would need to see bond yields go down another 50 to 100 basis points. And that's possible. But I think people forget that the reason mortgage rates have fallen 100 basis points in the last month is because they're already pricing in what the Fed has said that they're going to do. So it's not like they're like waiting for a rate cut and saying now bond yields are going to go down. We have to remember that a lot of the benefit of this Fed pivot has already happened. So we need some other catalyst to come in and force rates lower. And I think the other thing is that even if the Fed cuts rates to, let's say, 4.5%, that doesn't mean bond yields are going to go down. And that's what really needs to happen for mortgage rates to move. I don't know what's going to happen, but there is a very logical argument that since the economy has remained relatively strong, it's probably going to decline a bit next year. That would bring up bond rates. That's traditionally what happens during periods of economic strength, bond yields rise. So I think are equally good arguments on both sides that rates might go up 
rates might go down. So I think we'll still see some volatility in the coming months. I hope the band of volatility, the highs and lows are much less than what they've been over the last couple of years, but I'm not expecting things to just tick down. I think we'll probably see some backslide. Just in the last couple of days, bond yields have gone up to a 20 basis point. So it just shows that it's not going to be a smooth recovery back down to lower rates. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest complaints that I heard from whether they're residential or commercial real estate investors is the quickness with these exponential increases in rates so quickly. I don't think anyone really anticipated that when you look back 18, 24 months ago. And it made it really difficult to underwrite whether you're doing multifamily, commercial, or just a small multifamily or single family. It made it so difficult to underwrite what is this property going to be worth in six to 12 months? What is my debt going to look like in six to 12 months? And I've been traditionally a Burr investor. So for my strategy, it's been extremely difficult. I'm basically just looking at absolute worst case scenarios. That's the way I've had to underwrite the last couple of years and hoping it's not that bad. Just kind of trying to find those base hit deals where they pencil out, even if really bad things happen in the market or with the debt service. So um, well, that's smart. my point to that. <laughs> that's a good, good yeah. Point. yeah. Well, and, yeah, and that's, and that'd be my advice to anybody in that strategy. And it's been difficult to make it work. Same with flippers. Flippers are in the same boat, so to speak, because they're trying to sell a property in three, six, nine months, and they have no idea what the market's going to do. So it, it's a really risky business, unfortunately. But my point to that is that I hope it is stabilizing and it's going to allow some price discovery and it's going to allow for some more consistent underwriting in the debt market. What are your thoughts on all of that for 24? I totally agree. I think people often in real estate root for lower rates. And honestly, I think there's pros and cons to lower rates, higher rates. I think they've gone up too fast. I'd like to see them come down to more in the low sixes, mid fives kind of thing. But there are pros and cons. What I think has been the most damaging, like you said, to real estate is the volatility has been really difficult. Anyone, Burr in particular, like you said, flipping is really tough. Anything in commercial real estate is really tough. Development where you have bridge loans, anything like that has been so hard because you just don't know. So I think that is my number one hope for the first few months of 24 is that even though we'll still see some volatility, there's so much uncertainty still right now. But I think the Fed's signaling less craziness, <laughs> and let's hope they're right, and that we're going to just have more predictability. And that means if you find a deal that's going to pencil two months later when you actually close and get your rate lock, it's probably going to be pretty close to what it was, and you're not going to be finding yourselves in these adverse conditions like had been going on for probably 18 months. Yeah. So when you look at the data, and obviously I know that's your main focus, is there anything outside of all the headlines that you see that you're paying attention to? So for the listeners of the show, which are primarily a little bit more sophisticated commercial investors on average, what would your advice for them to be as to what data to follow, what to pay attention to if they're not already? Most of your audience may be familiar with this, but in the commercial things, there's a couple things that I personally look at. One is just the forecasted deliveries in most markets. It's very regional. And if you're not familiar, it's just basically how many new units are coming online. And obviously, the absorption of those units are really critical. But in some markets, they have already peaked. And we've seen the delivery of COVID booms of multifamily apartments. 
So those markets are probably going to stabilize. Hopefully vacancy rates will peak and we'll start to see a more reasonable market where deals can be possible. In other markets, construction kept going probably later than it should have. And there's still this sort of looming (laughs) amount of multifamily deliveries that might be coming online that I personally find a little bit scary. Not that they're bad long term, but I think there's this confluence of factors in commercial that everyone's probably aware of. We have some softening household formation, potentially more softening demand during a potential economic downturn, even if it's not technically a recession. I think most people are forecasting the unemployment rate at the very least to go up to closer to four and low fours. So those two things happening at the same time with the increased supply, it seems tough. Some sellers obviously see the writing on the wall and are willing to negotiate on price. Others are sticking to their guns. So to me, there's just this stalemate in commercial real estate right now. And I think, unfortunately, I don't really see it ending anytime soon. I don't know how you think about it, Joe. But to me, I have a hard time figuring out what's going to start greasing the wheels, at least let's say in the next six months. Yeah, it is an interesting dynamic right now. And I think a lot of major markets are seeing this where sellers have price expectations that are probably 12 to 18 months in the past. Buyers are looking at pricing at today's values or what they think they may be in six months. And there is a really difficult gap there to bridge whether it's make a sale as a broker or as a buyer and seller, it's really tough because expectations are just totally out of whack. And that was what I mentioned a few minutes ago. I think that hopefully some consistency in price discovery, whether it's cap rates, normalizing values. I'm in the Midwest here, so we didn't have any of this crazy explosive volatile pricing that some of the other big markets had, but we did have major value growth and we did have major rent growth. And that created this dynamic where it's difficult for sellers to exit properties if they were trying to do short term. You mentioned the bridge debt. There are some sellers on larger properties that did that. And I don't know. I don't know what their answer is. Fortunately, I was not in any of those big deals at that point. So I wasn't stuck with that debt. But it is interesting. There's people out there definitely holding on to some deals where it's not going to go well unless something changes in the market. And I don't know what the answer is for them. Obviously, there are people that have just walked away and turned it back over to the bank. That's happened quite a bit. I don't think as much as some people anticipated. I remember, and you probably remember this, talking with economics daily. But a year ago, you had a lot of people saying, this is the end. This is going to be 08. There's going to be a 30 40% vacancy increase and values are going to plummet. Obviously, none of that happened. I thought that was a little bit sky is falling type of talk. But I did hear that quite a bit. And none of that came to fruition. So I guess my follow-up question and shifting a little bit away from the commercial stuff. I talk to retail homeowner buyers and I talk to investor clients all the time, typically in the small to mid-sized multifamily space. But the feedback I hear often is that I'm going to wait for rates to come down to buy or that I think if I am more patient, hold on to capital, the market in six months is going to be way more opportunistic. What are your thoughts on people with that philosophy today? It's tempting, right? It's tempting to want to wait. It's just so impossible to time the market. I think it's dangerous. I still personally am looking at deals and will buy deals when they make sense right now. I'll just be candid. The deals I buy individually are residential. I do invest in commercial deals. 
passively with a couple of syndicators that I've been working with for a long time. So I think it's more tempting on the commercial side because it is more uncertain what's going to happen. I still really have a hard time seeing the residential market crashing. So what I think is going to happen is if rates start to come down, the most likely scenario is we get a very competitive market again. So some people might like that and feel more psychologically comfortable in a market where rates are lower. But other people I talk to, and I count myself in this camp, are more comfortable buying now when there's a little bit less competition because rates you can always refinance and who knows how long you'll be waiting. My basic thesis, and I of course could be wrong here, is that even if rates do come down, I think they're going to come down slowly. I don't think that we're getting to mid fives in the next year or two, maybe in two years, but not in 2024. That's just my guess. So like, how long are you going to wait? And let's say 25 basis point deduction in interest rates is going to bring in, I'm going to make it up, let's just say another half a million buyers. I don't know the exact numbers, but I know every 100 basis points brings in several million buyers. So let's just theorize here. So if you wait 25 basis points, then you're already facing mortgage. You say, all right, I'm going to wait again. Then you're going to have more competition. So you're going to be facing higher price points likely and slowly declining rates. So is the affordability actually going to change for you? I don't know. That's a pretty big question mark, but I don't think it's guaranteed rates are going to go down and then everything is going to become an easy buy. That doesn't strike me as a likely outcome. If you look at it, like you said, let's theorize here. We can make a hypothetical. Would you rather be the investor that is sitting on a handful of deals they bought while the market was slow and there was much less competition when rates do drop at whatever point that may be? Or would you rather be the person who's buying when there's 20, 30 offers on properties like we saw a couple of years ago as rates are at record lows? And I can tell you what I would rather be. I think it's pretty obvious. But I think that gives a little bit of the dynamic there of what could happen. And obviously, I'm an agent. So people look at agents and say, well, agents are trying to sell. It's always a good time to buy. They're trying to sell. And there is an absolute truth to that. I think agents always have a spin that they're going to put on whatever market we're in. That's part of their job. Their salespeople are one of them. So I can understand people's perception of that. But I also put my money where my mouth is. I would never advise a client to do what I'm not willing to do. So as you mentioned, there are deals out there today, whether it's residential, small multifamily, mid-multifamily, or commercial, they are definitely more challenging to find than they were two, three, even five years ago, of course. I think every year gets a little bit more competitive. And I think podcasts like this one and Bigger Pockets and all the other media out there for people's consumption has helped all the average Joes in the world, myself included, get access to that information and education, which has helped create competition in the real estate market that just didn't exist. So I don't think it's going anywhere. I think competition is going to continue to get more increased year over year. And I think that when you buy consistently, you set yourself up to have the most opportunities for success. And I don't know, I think it was somebody with bigger pockets. It could have been you. It could have been Scott Trench. But I heard somebody a long time ago talk about dollar cost averaging when obviously the stock market term. So I apologize if you know who coined that term with the real estate. It might have been Scott Trench. But anyway, it was one of those things where if you buy consistently, you're going to have deals that win, hopefully more than lose. And I think that any market allows you to do that. Totally. I talk about it all the time, but I give Scott credit. He taught it to me at least. Just okay, remember. he probably coined it then. Yeah, because <laughs> one time I was talking to him we both invest in Denver and we've been both at working at bigger pockets for a long time. And I was like, 
you're going to buy in this market, it's really high. And in retrospect, this was probably like 2016. So it seems low now. Yeah. And he said, my plan is just to keep buying. Sometimes I'm going to buy a great deal. Sometimes I'm going to buy a bad deal. But as long as I stay to the average, I'm going to do well. And it really stuck with me. And that's so true. If you are investing for a long time horizon, it doesn't really matter all that much. If you can find a deal that pencils and will carry itself so that you can hold on to it, that's great. I think the one challenge with dollar cost averaging, and again, just for everyone listening, what it means is just trying to buy at regular intervals and not being as focused on where you are in a particular market cycle or business cycle because it is inherently unknowable. And just saying, look at the average. Do yourself a favor, go Google the median home price in the US over the last 50 years and you'll see. If you attach yourself to that average, you're gonna do pretty well. And I think the only caveat I would say to that is that if you buy deals that don't cash flow, you could find yourself in a economic situation where you have to sell before you're ready. And that's what I think in real estate you always want to avoid is forced selling. So uh, if you're buying at regular intervals, you have good cash reserves, you have at least a little bit of cash flow. Cash flow has never been my main thing, but as long as you have a little bit of cash flow so that you can weather a storm and hold on to deals for a long time. I just recommend buying when you find a good deal, regardless of the market cycle. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? Syndicationattorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money, ensure your offerings comply with security laws, and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in security offerings created, syndicationattorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. SyndicationAttorneys.com also offers weekly attorney-led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre-syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, visit SyndicationAttorneys.com today to get started. And this offer is not available to Florida residents. This leads me to something I've mentioned many times on this show, but I'll share it with you, where real estate investing to me is so personal, meaning that everybody's situation is totally different. I've talked to thousands of investors, whether they're clients or guests or just networking, and everybody's situation is different. And you really have to understand your situation and analyze it and take the time to reflect on what is your life, what is your financial situation, and then what are you trying to do and why? All of those things are so important. And I give this example because it's a real example. I had a client who called me. He was a surgeon based in California, making a ton of money, as you can imagine. And he wanted to flip homes in Cincinnati and make 20K a, a flip. And I'm like, dude, why are we talking about this? This makes absolutely no sense. You know how much time and work it's going to be for you to manage these flips from across the country to make what you can make in a, in a couple of weeks of work. The philosophy didn't align, right? Yep. So I was able to redirect them into something more fruitful. But the point being that that is the same type of dynamic everyone has to look at. If you have no money, well, then maybe generating revenue through wholesaling or flipping or something else makes sense or deal finding, whatever. But anyway, that leads me to your book. And hopefully that segue worked out well, because yeah, when you were mentioning my that, language I think, now, <laughs> talk to us about your book. I don't want to give it away, but tell us what it's about and why you wrote it. 
The book is called Start With Strategy. And the reason I wrote it is because I find that a lot of newer investors or people who are learning to scale find themselves focusing really on tactics before they focus on strategy. And the difference in nomenclature here is that strategy is an overall objective that you're trying to get to. Tactics are things that you use to achieve a strategy. So when I talk about tactics in real estate, I think flipping is a tactic. I know people call flipping a strategy in real estate often. Some people call rentals a strategy. To me, those are tactics meant to achieve a bigger strategy, which to me is the lifestyle I want to live and the financial goals that I have. So I created a framework that helps real estate investors essentially create a business plan. And it starts with what is your business? Why are you doing this? What is your mission? And what are your goals? And only once you've figured that out, can you back into the right deals for you? Your surgeon example is such a perfect example because it's like, why would that guy flip houses? Flipping houses is time consuming. This guy's got great income. He doesn't need this sort of quick hits of money that flips are great for, not knowing anything else about this guy. But I would say, put that guy in some rental properties that even if they only cash flow a little bit right now, will grow over the next 10 or 20 years. And by the time he's ready to be stopping a surgeon, he'll have tons of cash flow to replace his income. Meanwhile, if you're brand new to real estate, you hate your job, but you're pretty handy and you like the idea of being on site all day, you should flip some houses. There's very, very different ways to invest in real estate. And all real estate is entrepreneurship. It's not investing in equities. So you need to have a plan of what you want to do. So the book is designed to help give people a plan personalized to them about how to succeed in real estate. You know, it's so funny because before you got on here, I had no idea what your book was about. And, <laughs> and I'm not just plugging it for the sake of plugging it. What you said is literally the ex exact dynamic of the first consultation I have with any new investor. Literally, the first 30, 45 minute call I have with anyone I meet is who are you? What is your life? What are you trying to do and why? And, and I'm not going to show you a house. I'm not going to talk about real estate. I want to know who you are and what you're doing and why. And it's so funny you say that because that resonates with me a ton. And I don't think enough people talk about it. It's not something that you consistently hear in networking or podcasts or, or otherwise. So I appreciate it personally because it's a big part of my business. Which is so funny, right, Joe? Because if you could contact financial planners, which I have one and is great. That's what financial planners do. They ask you, what are your life goals? When do you want to retire? How much cash flow? How much longer do you plan to work? What do you want to buy with your money? But that is just so absent in the common conversation about real estate investing that real estate agents wind up being the financial planner trying to figure out what your objectives are. And I'm not an agent, but I speak to a lot of investors and do some mentoring and stuff. And it's the same thing. This is not rocket science. Anyone who is planning for retirement or trying to come up with a comprehensive plan for their financial lives should be thinking about before they get into anything. Because I'm sure some people tell you goals and you're like, you shouldn't buy real estate. You should just put your money in equities. If you have the low risk tolerance, you don't want to be involved, go buy some bonds. Or some people come in, probably say, I want to buy rental properties and be like, oh, you're a contractor. You have all this stuff. You should be doing burrs. There needs to be, I think, some more education up top before people 
work with an agent or a lender just to be of the thousand different permutations of viable real estate options. Here are 10 that I'm thinking about. Can you help me with them? And I just feel like it would make the whole industry a lot more efficient and it would get more early investors to be successful because it can be super overwhelming for them if they just look at every possible scenario and think, I got to learn about all of these before I pull the trigger on any of them. It's funny you say that because we talked a lot about the market the last couple of years. And one benefit I've seen in the market is that real estate the last, let's call it 10 years, has become very much a fad. And I feel like a lot of new investors are trying to get into it or were trying to get into it for maybe the wrong reasons because they felt like they were going to miss out. They felt like it was the right or the cool thing to do, or they watched something on HGTV, or they saw something on Instagram or TikTok that led them to like, oh, I'm going to be a real estate investor. And I think when you get into real estate for the wrong reasons, a couple things happen. You realize it's way more difficult than you're going to gather from listening to a podcast like yeah, this. Passive income um, is not real. <laughs> yes. And you also realize that it is easy to talk about wins. It's easy to talk about how great we are, how successful we are. And that's a lot of the stuff you see on social media. But when you get into the minutiae and the day-to-day -day and the difficulties and the struggles, you realize something I like to say is it's not complicated, but it is difficult. Meaning that you have to be persistent, you have to be consistent, and you have to really try to, like you mentioned, formulate a strategy and stick with it and learn the process but you don't have to be a Harvard graduate to understand the stuff we're talking about here. You can be an average Joe like me and do well in real estate. So who would you say this book is for? I think the book is for anyone who's starting out brand new from scratch, or I think like most of us get into real estate sort of on a whim, buy a property or two, and they're like, what am I doing? Do I want to scale? How do I scale? I think those are the two things. And a lot of the frameworks and a lot of the tools that I've included in the book, there's all sorts of Excel downloads and stuff that go in there. I really had to develop as I was scaling, asking myself, what is my risk tolerance? How much risk am I willing to take? How much time am I willing to put into my portfolio? It's helpful at the beginning, but I also think people who scale run into these problems too, because most people continue to work full time. It's like all of a sudden you're self-managing three, four units becomes a challenge and you have to think about is this really what i want or how can i reorient my portfolio to help get me to my long-term goal and it really worked for me i was living in denver self-managing probably did that for too long but ultimately when i moved to europe i had to have this reckoning when i was like i still want to invest in real estate but i can't do what i've always been doing and I have to really think about what are my goals? What do I want? And how can I work backwards to get there? And a lot of the tools, I worked on that for years and that became the book eventually. So I was already a successful investor at that point in scaling. And these tools were still really helpful to me. Okay, so when does it come out and how can people get it? It comes out on January 18th. And if you order on Bigger Pockets, it's biggerpockets.com slash strategy book. Before the end of the month of January, you get the free planner that goes along with it. So the book has all this context and information, but alongside it, you can actually write out your strategies take notes and do all this stuff. And normally that's a $30 value. So that's free if you order in the next couple of weeks. So it's biggerpockets.com slash strategy book. Awesome. We will be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. And I did want to spend a little bit of time before we segment out to our next segment 
to talk about what are you personally investing in in 2024? What are you looking at and why? I'm trying to do a couple different things, but the main big difference I'm trying to do is getting in your neck of the woods. I actually am trying to buy some rental properties in the Midwest. I know everyone's moving to the Southeast on my podcast. I joke about it all the time. I'm long on the Midwest. I think 10, 20 years, we're going to see a resurgence in the Midwest and I want to get into it. So I just drove around looking at a couple different markets the last few days and just trying to buy small multifamilies, single families. I'd buy commercial, but there's just not a lot of inventory as you probably know right now. So that's the number one thing. The second thing is I've personally been trying to learn how to lend. I do invest in lending funds, but I am trying to educate myself on buying individual notes and doing some hard money lending as another part of real estate I'm curious to learn more about. Awesome. Well, if you ever need help in Cincinnati, I'd be happy to help you out here. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Cool, man. Well, let's segment over to our best ever lightning round. You ready? Yes. Best ever book recommendation. I just read a book by Simon Sinek I really liked called The Infinite Game, which I thought was just a really good take on how to set yourself up for long-term success rather than focusing on short-term wins. It's probably not my favorite all-time book, but it's fresh in mind and it's really been thought-provoking to me. So highly recommend. Best ever way you like to give back? For me right now, it's mostly through education. I'm mostly trying to share my knowledge as much as I can for a lot of free content, podcast, YouTube. I think there's a lot of excellent real estate educators out there. I hope that I am helping to fill a gap in helping people understand economics on a better level because whether you like this or not, it does impact almost every facet of your life and having a basic understanding of economics is super important. So I try and help people do that. It's so funny you say that because I tell investors this all the time. As you scale and you get more experience and you get a bigger portfolio and more knowledge base, you're not really out there looking for the how-to stuff. You're not looking for how do I flip or how do I find a tenant? You're looking for the macro data that's really going to help you be successful. And I tell a lot of investors this. When you're brand new, it's hard to understand that. But the stuff, the content you make, Jay Scott's another guy I like and follow his stuff. That is the type of content when you get up a couple levels, that is what's important. So I really appreciate what you guys do. Like I said, I followed your stuff. I've been a fan for a while, so I appreciate it. And there isn't a lot of people that I actually trust putting out content related to data or economics. So I certainly appreciate it. I'm sure our audience does as well. Well, thank you. My second to last question is, give me a mistake you made in an investment deal and the lesson you learned from it. Oh God, I just had a whole situation with the short-term rental blow up. But I think the biggest mistake I think I've made, generally speaking, in investing is not outsourcing things quickly enough and trying to do everything myself. I did that for probably eight or nine years. Cleaning toilets, flipping rentals between tenants, and it just slowed me down so much. I think back and cringe about like how much my portfolio could have been bigger if I was willing to give up some control and had learned how to scale not just my own skill, but my ability to run a business. So that's, I think, the biggest things. I have plenty of small stories of silly things I screwed up, <laughs> but I think that's the biggest thing I regret because mistakes always happen on a small scale. It's part of the business. But I think that's something I think hopefully I can pass along to other aspiring and growing investors. Oh, you're speaking to my heart yet again. Uh, <laughs> totally, totally relate to that one. I think it might be the most common thing yeah, investors yeah. say. I do hear regret. that a lot. It's hard though, right? Because you usually get into it. You don't have a lot of money. You're trying to scrap 
into it, you're hustling. And it's hard to be, oh, I should pay someone to do that, but it doesn't save you money. I can promise you it does not save you money. It's just hard to have that realization. Usually you get there, but hopefully anyone listening to this gets there a little faster than I did. Yeah. And I think something I see is very common across entrepreneurs, people who invest or have their own businesses. It's a type of personality that typically wants to dictate a lot of control. And the problem is that's actually counterproductive to scaling and to growing a business or an investment portfolio is you have to, as you mentioned, start offloading a lot of that control and let people make decisions and trust other people. Those are almost like competing personality traits in a lot of ways. So I think that's why it's so common is that what made you get to the point where you needed to start hiring out is also what holds you back from doing it. Yep, um, exactly. It's like how people say it's kind of the same, but it's how people say like making money and keeping money are two different skill sets. It's the same thing with real estate. Starting in real estate and scaling real estate are different skill sets. And you need to be proactively learning the scaling skill set while you're still hustling. I couldn't agree more, Dave. I appreciate you coming on. Where can people connect with you and learn more about you and your book? And I think you had another book that came out a couple years ago, right? Yes. I have another book called Real Estate by the Numbers, which Jay Scott, as you mentioned, and I wrote together. So very economics heavy real estate book, but it's great. You can find me on Instagram where I'm at the data deli. And if you want to check out the new book or either book, you can go to the biggerpockets.com slash store. The URL for this book is biggerpockets.com slash strategy book. Awesome. We'll be sure to link to all those in the new book as well. Dave, I really appreciate your time today. Listeners, if you got value from today's show, please make sure you're following us on social media. Make sure you leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. Make sure you're following Dave and check out his show on Bigger Pockets as well. I'm a listener and I really couldn't say enough good stuff about it. Dave, thank you again so much for coming on today. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.